So some of you know that I grew up in the Chicago area, um, and I think that some of you know that I am hopelessly a Chicago Cubs fan. I, it's a sickness. <laughs> it's a sickness. I spent a lot of time in Wrigley Field um, growing up, and to me, Wrigley Field is the platonic ideal of a ball field. They should not be all that big. They should definitely not have lights. When I went to Wrigley Field, that was before they had lights. Um, and I went and cheered the Cubs on time after time, even though they almost always lost, right? It was, the Cubs were the losingest team in baseball. Before they won the World Series in 2016, it had been since 1908. In Chicago, people wear t-shirts that say, any team can have a bad century, right? There's no rhyme or reason to it, but they're my team. I'm a Cubs fan. And I thought of that this week as Mitch and I were wrestling with how to talk about this passage from Exodus. Because as a quick cursory reading, it sort of looks like people are being told what to do so that they can ward off an angry God. And I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that the description about There's so many marvelous details in it. The description about slaughtering a lamb and putting the blood over the lintel is not about warding off. It's about saying who we are. What is our loyalty? We're on God's team, they're saying. I like the interpretation that Erica McRae, a Presbyterian minister in Iowa, says. She says, painting the door is a declaration of loyalty to a God of freedom. It's a a demonstration of identity as one of God's people, kind of like being a Cubs fan. And I really like that parallel, Barb, but there's still some really disturbing things in there. Uh, Like, why is there so much emphasis on blood? There is so much... Talk about blood, blood from the slaughter of animals, blood painted on your door lentils. It's, uh, it's a bit odd to modern ears. It's more than odd, it's icky. And uh, maybe those of you in healthcare deal with blood a lot, uh, but modern Western society squirms away from blood at all costs. Uh, we like to separate ourselves from anything to deal with the reality. Um, we don't watch a lot of TV, but I was struck fairly recently uh, when we were watching a commercial for what are obliquely called feminine hygiene products on TV that, that demonstrate their fabulous absorption by pouring blue liquid on them. And I was like, blue? Is this for Vulcans? Uh, Why clear liquid? So that it looks like anything but what it actually is supposed to be, because we're uncomfortable with blood. Uh, We had a a clergy colleague in Vermont who insisted on using white grape juice for communion because he was uncomfortable with any kind of symbolism that pointed to the reality of blood. This is true. During the Lord's Supper. (laughs) This is my plasma poured out for you? Or I'm not sure. I'm not sure what he was. uh, 
No need, don't need to go there. So, yeah, we don't do a lot of blood today. Uh, but 3,500 years ago, in Moses' day, blood was an everyday reality. Uh, if you wanted lamb for dinner, you had to go back out and slaughter the thing. Blood and all. Eating involved blood. Birthing involved blood. Life involved blood. Death involved blood. There wasn't much avoiding it. So we were thinking about what, what's a common everyday thing that's in most households that would be similar in our day. And the only thing we could come up with was coffee grounds. Right? Take some coffee grounds and sprinkle them on your front doorstep to let us know that yeah. you're the people of God. It just isn't going to work, not quite is the it? Same. No. Blood was also a symbol of life. It was believed to be the life force. When someone dies, the blood stops flowing. It wasn't just as common as having chicken for dinner. It was also holy. So to put the blood of a slaughtered lamb on the doorframe of a house was more than just using a common daily item like coffee grounds, right? It was a holy demonstration of the life in this house, the life that was given by God and the life that would soon be freed by God. That doorpost blood was a sign to God saying, your people, your own people live here. Pass this house by tonight with death, at least tonight. Which is the second challenging and awful part of this story. If we, we've had to skip a lot of parts of the Exodus story that we're reading through this fall. But what would happen that night was that the angel or messenger of God would pass over Egypt as, as a messenger of death. Striking down the firstborn of every human and animal family of Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to change his mind. That's a really difficult and awful thing for us moderns to hear. But we have to remember that this scene, this awful Passover scene, is the end of the story of the plagues in Egypt. Earlier in the story, God tried every other means he can imagine to get Pharaoh to change his mind. Nine previous afflictions on the Egyptian leadership to get Pharaoh to let the people go. Plagues of frogs, sores, rivers turning into blood. Blood again. Blood again. (laughs) Flies and hail and darkness. All these things saying, look, God is serious, man. Let God's people go. And he would not, and he would not, and he would not. And despite all the warnings, none of them worked. So remember, God did not start with the angel of death. It was the last attempt to get Pharaoh to change his mind, to let God's people go from slavery oppression, and genocide. Which is another uncomfortable piece for us modern folk. 
that sometimes in order to upend an entrenched, unjust, and genocidal social order, when nothing else will budge it loose, something dramatic has to happen. In many of our own lifetimes or our parents' lifetimes, we remember Martin King's bus boycott that had to last an entire year of people suffering through walking to work for an entire year. Or Gandhi's nonviolent movement in India where they decided to walk to the sea to protest British injustice and they walked 320 kilometers. It was a dramatic example. Being beaten by British soldiers most of the way. In our day, we are having hard conversations about reparations for slavery. That make us uncomfortable. Sometimes there there are climate change disruptions of people's ordinary lives, including tennis matches, to bring folks' attention to the crisis of what's going on in our planet. And in Moses' case, even the death of the Pharaoh's firstborn. It's not pretty making change, but it's real. I think it's a reminder to us Especially us who, those of us living in Cambridge, it's a pretty privileged place in our culture in so many ways. That sometimes the means of change is uncomfortable, even outright, downright disturbing in the pursuit of justice. It's necessary, but it's not always pretty. But it is real. And God is disrupting the slave system of Egypt, not just to free the the Hebrew slaves, to bring those people out into freedom, though that's part of it. It's also to free them to be fully in a relationship with God, a relationship of love, a relationship of mutual respect. And as the people come out of slavery, eventually God gives them the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks gives them the rest of the Torah, gives them guidance on how to care for each other in sticky situations, how to be in right relationship with God. So it's not just a project of being free from slavery. It's about being free to be in relationship. And I think, I'm not God, but I think that much to God's disappointment at times, The Hebrew people forget about the relationship part because relationships are hard. We don't have to tell any of you that. Relationships are hard. It's a lot easier to think about what are the rules that I have to follow. And so, so often, the Hebrew folks would fall back on just following the Ten Commandments, or not just, doing the laws of Torah to sort of Prove that they were righteous, but they skipped out on the relationship pieces. And God had to keep sending prophets to say, yes, the rules are important, and you're, please take care of the poor. Please take care of each other. Please do things that show love to each other and to me. And Israel would get it for a little while, and then would forget again, because they're human, just as we are. 
Just as we sometimes bring all of ourselves to relationships and then sometimes all we do is go through the motions. It's part of who we are. So some 1,300 years after the dramatic action of Passover, God takes another dramatic action. God came to us as one of us to live among the people in human flesh. The fancy theological word is incarnation, which is an uncomfortable word. It means in meat. Jesus came to us in the flesh. And it was God's way of saying, look, I'll show you what it means to live in love. How it is to love me, to love one another. This is what it looks like, is shaped like, walks like, touches like. Whenever Jesus got into a, a tiff with the Pharisees, who said he wasn't following Torah law exactly correctly, Jesus would remind them that he's not throwing out the Torah, the law, but he is claiming love and mercy as the highest law, as the lens through which to apply the laws. And he urged them and us to do the same. This is how it is done, Jesus said. This is how to live in love with God and each other and the world. So when he's moving beyond the boundaries, outside the lines of who you're supposed to touch, who you're supposed to feed, who you're supposed to heal, he was showing this is how God's love is like and how we can live that out. Now the Gospels tell us a lot about Jesus disagreements with the Pharisees. But ultimately, Jesus ran afoul of the government, the Roman imperial government, during the Pax Romana, the Roman imperial domination system. And so Jesus was crucified as a threat to that domination system. But God was not done. Jesus' resurrection was a dramatic negation, not just of the law concerns of the Jewish authorities, but also the cruel oppression of the Roman Empire. The dramatic. The dramatic, yes. His resurrection shouted a divine no to all systems of domination, including the ones we live under today. My life and love are the ultimate power, God says. Live in love with me and through me and to each other and to the world. And so as the church tried to live this out, after Jesus' resurrection, we have the writings from Paul that Andre shared this morning. And in them he says, The one who loves another person has fulfilled Moses' teachings, has fulfilled the Torah, Every commandment is summed up in this commandment, Paul says. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that 
is our ultimate command, to love each other. That's what God asks us to paint on the doorways of our homes, or the doorways of our hearts, maybe. We are to love so fully, so completely, that it's as obvious as blood on the door. We're to love so fully, so completely, that we stand out as people who are loyal to God and God's love, just as the Hebrew doors stood out on that first Passover. We believe, and I know you believe too, that loving one another is how we show our loyalty to God. It's how we say that we're on God's team. Sometimes figuring out how to do that with integrity and with compassion is genuinely difficult. It's not simple. It's loving. Sometimes it means stirring up complacent systems. It's not always comfortable, this loving. Cornel West is famous for saying, justice is love made public. That is what we are called to do, to be so public in our love that we make our world a more just place, a more equal place, a more loving place, marking the doors of our lives in a public way. My mom tells a story of her Baptist pastor in Homewood, Illinois. He was dying of cancer and was staying with my parents. And he and my mom would have long conversations about life, the universe, and everything. And he said once that if, when he died, he somehow found out that the Bible was a fairy tale, that the stories of Jesus were just mythology, he would not feel that his life was wasted. Because those stories taught him about how to love and about how to live and how to be in the world as a force for good. The gospel, he said, has made me a better man. It would be all worth it. He could love with interest. Amen. Our next hymn is 120, which is called Your Love, O God.